Bedford. Do you know what to do if you're attacked and killed? Ask for Albert Kim C. at grand opening of Happy Dawn School of Secret Arts. Win free lesson. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Rapishaw. We have had quite a real-time gap between our last recording and this one. Yeah. <laughs> Out of practice. <laughs> so if you happen to listen to these episodes back to back and we made promises in the last one that we don't keep here or we or we think we said something and we didn't, we're sorry. Or our voice has changed as we've gone through podcaster puberty. Right. But yeah, we are uh, we are talking about the I guess the second Anthony Boy episode, season five, episode seventeen, the man who saw the alligators. Yes. If you weren't uh, here for the previous episode, uh, Anthony Boy uh, was one of the main antagonists of the two-parter uh, To Protect and Serve, which we did uh, on our previous episode a lifetime ago. <laughs> and uh, part of our our ingenious plan uh, was to do back-to-back episodes about this uh, so that we could view it as a whole as it was originally intended. <laughs> These episodes themselves have quite a gap between them, right? Uh, to Protect and Serve is season three, and this is season five. Yeah, so there are about two years of real time, and I think in the episode they they say like they say that the events of the previous episode were like three years ago or so. Yeah. So I don't know if that's literally they were looking at the production dates or if that was just kind of like, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. So To Protect and Serve was a two-part episode that aired, you know, in two consecutive weeks as a, uh, you know, continuous story. Um, the Man Who Saw the Alligators is a 90-minute episode. Mm-hmm. So it aired in a 90-minute slot as a single episode and then was later cut down to 60 minutes for syndication. So there are two versions of this episode. Um, I'm not sure if I've seen the 60-minute one before because the first time I saw this, I think, was when they were still streaming on Netflix many, many moons ago. Oh, right. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I just do not remember if that was the syndicated version or this full version. Yeah. The version on the DVDs uh, is the 90 minute version. Interesting. Maybe um, when we as we go through it, maybe we want to guess at what it might have been cut out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I felt like I felt like this uh, had a little different feel. Uh, mm-hmm. than normal rock. Like this felt more like a movie plot than uh, the Rockford Files normally do. Yeah. I don't, I, I can't quantify that in any way that's helpful. I just pulled up just real quick. I pulled up because Rockford Files is now streaming on IMDb TV, which mm-hmm. we happen to have open because that's our reference. And I believe on Amazon Prime as well. Uh, the version that's on this, that's on IMDb TV is the 60 minute version. Um, oh, okay. So that is just a note that if anyone is happening to, you know, watch, watch them as we talk about them. Um, we might have different versions. We might have different versions. And, we did not do the real deep dive to watch both versions <laughs> yeah. and see what the difference uh, might have been. And just checking on Amazon real quick, uh, it is also the 60-minute version. It says it's mm-hmm. 51 minutes runtime. So you can maybe let us know if you watch that and tell us what got cut out. Though, I, again, yeah, I think we can probably guess on some of the things. Yeah. There, there's some soliloquies and there are some long conversation scenes. Yeah. Among other things. I think my, my kind of uh, overall statement for this episode is that it's very much a character study um, to me. Yes. There is plot 
things happen, but it's really a character study of this, uh, of, of, uh, Anthony, yeah. uh, Gashlia, the Anthony boy, Tony, etc. Um, and kind of this portrait of obsession. Uh, since viewing them the first time on my, you know, initial watch, I think this episode has been paired, uh, with, um, paired with to protect and serve, not just because of the continuity of character, but with this, uh, the idea of this character study of someone who has this deep obsession. Mm-hmm. And I had not remembered that in to protect and serve the, that character, the woman, um, <laughs> we are old. I will admit that when we get near the end of this episode, I'm going to ask you what happened because I cannot remember <laughs> certain important details. And that was just yesterday. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, uh, Leanne Sweeney, the, the woman who's the like, oh, yeah, the super fan who has a crush on Dennis and then, you know, transfers that to, uh, Chapman, et cetera. Um, she's this character study of an obsessive person as well. And, I had kind of forgotten that that character was in that story, but maybe just in my brain, all of this was all connected because they do <laughs> have the continuity of character as well, which is all to say that these are these, those two characters, Leanne and Anthony Boy, seem of a piece to me in terms of this interest in exploring an obsessed person. Yeah, I would agree. I would even go so far as to say that in this particular episode, when it is most obviously a character study of Anthony Boy, uh, it shines the best. Mm-hmm. I don't want to disparage what the rest of the episode, because there's definitely some real fun uh, Rockford Files gags and yeah. uh, business and all of that. But the moments in which the uh, my notes are sparse because I've stopped remembering to write things down and I'm just caught up in what's happening on mm-hmm. the show. Uh, are, are the ones about Anthony Boy, his history, uh, his family, and the, uh, the dynamics that are kind of pouring out from that. Um, and so this is, you know, as, as was pre- Protect and Serve, this is also written by David Chase. Uh, and I think a lot of the kind of review commentary on this one really makes the connection between what's in this episode and, you know, later Sopranos stuff. Right. Like, yeah, it's a lot of family (laughs) mob stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, ethics, gymnastics. Yeah. Going on. Like people trying to make the argument that the horrible thing that they're trying to do is the morally correct thing because family or because loyalty or because of whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This episode is directed by Corey Allen. Um who did three Rockford Files. We last saw his work in The Empty Frame. Oh, yeah. The one with the uh, revolutionaries. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that was good. <laughs> and Angel's, uh, Angel's effort to be part of high society. Um, <laughs> there's one we haven't done yet as well. Um, so just looking at him real quick, it, I think we talked uh, we talked about him a little bit in The Empty Frame, I think, but uh, he was an actor before he was a director. Uh, he was in The Rebel Without a Cause, uh, and a bunch of TV shows, including a bunch of Westerns. But I guess one of his bullet points is that he directed the pilots for like 12 shows, um, including Murder, She Wrote oh. uh, and uh, the TNG uh, encounter at Farpoint. TNG being uh, Rockford Files slang for Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> As uh, $20 a day fans will know. Yeah. He's also the owner of a magnificent beard. His beard is magnificent, uh, for sure. And he also won an, an Emmy for a uh, Hill Street Blues episode that he directed. So, um, seems, seems like an interesting person. Uh, I think there's some, you said this is a little more filmic 
than yeah. some other episodes. And I feel like there are some moments very much staged to do that in yeah. this, uh, in this episode. And I don't know. So we technically have different sets. I have the Blu-rays and you have the DVDs. Question for you. Yeah. Did you have a preview montage? I know the question, so that should answer <laughs> your question. No, no preview montage. I was actually tempted to invent a preview montage mm-hmm. and just pretend that I had one. You know that, that it ends with a car exploding. Right. Yeah, right. We could cut a preview montage. There's plenty in this to do it. I wonder if the 60-minute episode had one. I bet they cut one for the 60-minute episode. Yeah. Uh, and then it would be delightful if there's a scene in that f- that has was cut out <laughs> of the 60-minute episode. Right. Uh, but uh, no, there's no preview montage, which in and of itself was intriguing. <laughs> and right. If you want to watch the episode, what are they afraid to tell us? <laughs> One final note before we get into it. This was the final episode that was filmed for the season. Oh, okay. It aired, you know, mid midway, but um, it seems that maybe one reason it was longer was as a bit of a, maybe it was a bit of a wrap because uh, James Garner was not planning to do a sixth season. Yeah, that's, in- that. that is very interesting in this light. Like just three more minutes of material, this could have been a wrap for the whole series, right? Like, yeah, you could see them doing just like just the, the nudging some of the plot points in certain directions to just be like, okay, now we're done. Ah, that's interesting. Obviously, did not air at the end of the season, so yeah. you know, maybe. So who knows? I think is an interesting way to kind of look at why this episode is the way it is. If it was like shot at the end of the production with the assumption that there was not going to be another season. Right. Not necessarily that this would be the last episode, but kind of like, you know, that's a wrap. Like after the end of this episode, it's kind of a interesting context for it. Um, and so if uh, for those who may have joined us more recently and don't know the history, uh, just a quick note about that. James Garner was very physically beaten mm. down by the process of doing this show because he did all his own stunts, his own driving. Um, and he had not intended to do another season, but through through the contract that his production company had with NBC, with, with Universal, they were able to ask for another season. And they also, according to their books, told... <laughs> James Garner that the show had never made any had not made any money despite all of the efforts that he went to to make sure that it made money um, that it wasn't too expensive to shoot. So between those things, um, he ended up agreeing to do the sixth season, which then was cut short because he was so physically injured. Uh, right. That like on the advice of his doctors, they're like, stop doing this. Like you can't keep doing the show, which then turned into this protracted contract dispute and series of lawsuits with Universal. I, I have since learned about like a lot of famous cases where uh, production companies have done that. Like apparently that happened with Alien, mm-hmm. uh, the movie Alien Fox, I think claimed that it didn't make any money in an attempt to not pay the other production company. It, Apparently, it's standard fare. Yeah. Recently, in the last couple months, there was a big story because uh, the creators of Columbo finally reached a settlement. Oh, right. Over the same thing with Universal, if I remember right. Yeah. Same same deal where they kept on claiming that the show never made any money. And so they weren't paying the creators what they were owed because the show did make money. You know what show I would watch? Hollywood Accounting. Yes. <laughs> like some sort of... 
you know, LA uh, forensics accountant whose mm. whole job it is is to get people paid the money they're owed for the detective shows that they did and were ripped off. It is a so, slow burn. It's 20 seasons mm-hmm. and there's no resolution until the very end. <laughs> Hello, listeners. We really appreciate you being here. And we want to make sure that you know that you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. In addition to episode previews and access to the 200 a day Rockford Files file spreadsheet, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where we talk about movies we're watching, books we're reading, and games we're playing. 200 a day will remain free to all for as long as we do it. But if you want to help support us and get access to the new Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling, if you play games online, you know you should check out his free dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Jay Adon. Check out his amazing miniature painting over at jadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, and finally, big thanks to detective patrons. Check them out on Twitter. Eric Antenner at Antenner, Brian Pereira at Thermoware, Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. There is no preview montage, so we start the episode right at the uh, right at, at San Quentin, mm-hmm. um, as we are told later. Our main man, Anthony Boy Gaglio, is is walking out of the entrance to the prison with a quirky smile on his face. <laughs> And ominous music. So this is all just mood setting. He's mm-hmm. coming out. Those of us who were watching in the third season might recognize him. Yeah, this is this is a um, kind of a Wrath of Khan thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel going into the Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan, I knew really who Khan was. <laughs> <laughs> like a villain from one episode at some point. And, right. But like, holy shit, I know now. Like Anthony Boy certainly was a memorable villain, and we remember him because that we deliberately set out to do this. But I doubt if watching this, if I was like, especially since actors get reused so often, exactly, I don't think I would go, oh no, it's him. Um, but we do know that he's important, obviously, because we're starting right. the episode with him, and we uh, uh, we end the scene with a he goes and sits on this like bench by like a bus stop outside the yeah. prison, and there's a slow zoom in on his face as he just kind of stares into the middle distance, and the title, the man who saw the alligators, pops up over his face. <laughs> it's pretty clear who that man is. Yes. Uh, the credits continue to roll as we follow Rocky's truck uh, to Paradise Cove. <laughs> um, and at first it just looks like it's Rocky, but then he gets out and goes around to the passenger side and pulls out a bag of groceries that was sitting on top of Jim. <laughs> Jim starts off, He's he really takes a lot of licks in this episode. Um, yeah. We're starting off with him. He's just had oral surgery. Uh, he's had his wisdom teeth out and... <laughs> Through this whole uh, introductory scene, he's high. <laughs> yes. He is high on the pain meds. And it is a delight to watch yeah. this happen. <laughs> Drugged, drunk, dentist? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, dentist. Okay. But, um, yeah, it, it's uh, uh, it's great watching James Gardner uh, ham it up. Yeah. 
am playing this uh, really amiable version of, <laughs> of Rockford. He just doesn't have a care in the world. Yeah, that dentist is a genius. Yeah. He's a genius. So, uh, yeah, we, we get Jim settled while Rocky bustles around. Um and says, uh, and answers the phone, um, because there is a phone call from an accountant that Jim has been working with, Adriana Danielli, which is the most amazing <laughs> Italian name. So just now it's like, I'm, I'm sure she was in something else. So I just checked. So this is, so, uh, Adriana is played by Sharon Acker, who we recently saw in Rosen, <clears throat> Rosendahl and Gilded Stern are dead. She was the wife of the doctor with ah. the martini gags at the tennis club or whatever. Tennis club, yeah, the rich person signifier. Yes, so a little more down, uh, downscale here, but uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, she's great. This this role is like necessary and and kind of and she's fun in it, but it's a little like this character is a little underbaked in the in this story, um, unfortunately. I mean, we'll find out the sort of plot reason for having her around, mm. but the uh, the main thing is sort of like well. Rockford needs an accountant. Also, he needs a romantic interest. So <laughs> right. here we go. Yeah. And uh, I think part of that was just casting her, who has some chemistry with him, and just saying, that'll be enough. We don't need to write that there was a romantic interest. <laughs> we can just assume. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's helping him out with his upcoming irs audit and needs uh needs the documents to actually look through but is yeah. going on vacation soon so jim needs to get him to her like right away of course unfortunately he is uh <laughs> doped up he'll call back tomorrow but we'll see where that leads dennis then arrives Yay. with the <laughs> necessary exposition for those of us who have not seen the previous episode featuring anthony boy so he's just bringing jim the news that, that Tony is out on parole. Um, the setup for this to kind of make it make sense that Dennis is telling Jim things that he already knows is that Jim is doped up and, yeah. you know, doesn't really remember. Um, it's fine. It's just this gets, gets it out there. So we're all on the same page. So he went to jail after, you know, the events on the pier in Oxnard. Uh, he blames Jim for his liver damage from the police bullet that right. he took. They thought he was dead, but it turns out he, yeah. <laughs> you know, just had some serious damage. Um, and, and, and he was talking in prison and apparently Jim is the one he is focused on as the cause of his, of his pain. Um, Dennis is saying, should leave town for a little bit. Take that vacation you've always wanted. The cops in New York say that this is a really bad dude. They say he has 32 kills under his belt, which seems like a lot. <laughs> Especially for like somebody who gets out in three years. Like there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of effort to keep him in. Um, but Dennis says to, he should leave town until he can get a line on him. Until like he will do something that will let us put him back in jail. But you mm -hmm. should get out of get out of here before that happens. Um, Jim is saying that well, guys say lots of things when they're in prison, <laughs> and now he's tired. It's time for a nap. But Dennis, Dennis can help himself to some ice cream. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about this scene is when. Dennis points out to us that, that Tony Boy hates California, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I cannot remember how or why that naturally arises in Dennis's uh, uh, backstory, but it's something that the audience might like to know. But what I love about this is that that's when Rocky realizes that this man is probably mentally ill. <laughs> <laughs> it is not that this man is looking to kill his son, but it's that he hates California, and how can someone hate California? Right. That is... 
That is ridiculous. This is one of the central conflicts of of, of the episode. There's mm-hmm. man versus man, and then there's man versus California. <laughs> one of the big big five right. conflicts. Yes. So we go from Jim taking a snap to Tony still waiting on the bench, and he is being picked up by his brother, Richie, mm. who has come all the way out from, from Brooklyn with Ma, even with her <laughs> hip and everything. Um, they came to pick him up and take him home. Mm-hmm. I think I did not realize until maybe the next scene how important Richie was going to be. <laughs> I, you know, I was actually just going to say the same thing. Like, when I was watching this scene, um, so... Basically, how this scene plays out is a lot of, like, gags about how overly mothering the mother is and just, Mm -hmm. like, just how a family is all up in each other's business or whatever. But to me, they just, when I was watching them, they were kind of just playing out as gags because I wasn't thinking this is going to be the thrust of the story. Yeah, I wasn't thinking we were going to really see them again. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, okay, we're just establishing that he's got a nice, fine Italian, stereotypical Italian family. Um, you know, the, the brother makes the the comment about, like, you, you got to talk to her. I'm going to have to talk to her. I came all the way out here with her. I'm going to have to talk to her all the way home. Right. Yeah. He says that he's, uh, I've been with her for two days straight and I'm going out of my nut. Yeah. (laughs) And then like when, when, uh, Anthony comes over to his mother, uh, he's like, just, what are you crying? What are you crying? What are you crying for? And it's like, well, you, you've been in prison for three years. Um, so it's, it's clearly a family that's not, uh, that, that has these interactions. You, you can feel that this is probably what, what it was like in their household growing up. You mm-hmm. can kind of see all that. Uh, but you don't think we're getting the beginning of a character study here. That's not what went through my head. And I think that part of that is just because I had this, uh, how we set up these, these two episodes. I was like, this is a revenge flick. Yeah. Uh, and, um, it is, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, plot wise, uh, a couple things that Richie conveys is that, uh, Mr. Minette will remember. He mm-hmm. is the, the mob boss from Brooklyn. Mr. Minette wants Tony back. Uh, he has an idea. He wants to put him in a more managerial position. Uh, he has a job for Richie. He's going to give Ma a house on Long Island. He's wanted, he's going to take care of everyone. He just needs, uh, he just wants everyone to come back. But Tony isn't sure he wants to work for Minette anymore. He didn't help him out with any of the legal stuff when he got thrown in prison. And he has to go to LA to take care of some business. And then he'll, he'll be in touch. Uh, his his ma gets him to promise that he'll drop in on their cousin who lives in L.A. Mm-hmm. and says that uh, uh, she knows that Tony misses her sauce. One thing I love about the scene is that um, it's starting to establish some pressure for him, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's not pressure pushing him towards killing Rockford. We have already been told by Dennis that he's going to try and kill Rockford. Right. We know that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. This is some other pressure coming from another direction. And I dig that in these sorts of stories. Like, I love when an antagonist is not just driven to be the one thing you need them to be in the plot. Like, in this case, I mean, it's going to become evident later, but it already starts to feel like he he doesn't trust what's going on with Minette. And he's trying right. to, like, maybe outrun him a little bit. And also, what's going to happen with his younger brother? Like, he specifically doesn't want the younger brother involved in the business. Uh, and we know how that always turns <laughs> out. Um, yep. There's that great line that uh, I think the mom is like, hasn't this family had enough trouble yet? And Anthony's like, no, not enough. We need more. <laughs> so I dig, I dig the, uh, uh, 
all the pressures being presented in this scene. Tony kind of ends up at the intersection of three vectors, mm-hmm. uh, and so we're kind of getting them all established. Here, we cut to Mr. Manette. Mm-hmm. We get to see the man himself. Uh, he's he's getting his uh, headshot taken. There's a dedication for a youth center in his name coming up that uh, he's going to be attending. We're, we get the portrait of the uh, involved community member, you know, in the front, uh, uh, ruthless crime boss in the back. Yeah. <laughs> he is the the mullet of Italian stereotypes. <laughs> but uh, he's played by Joseph Sorolla, who is a craggy-faced Italian mob actor. Yes. <laughs> Extraordinaire. Um, especially in the 70s. So he, he looks the part, right? Like, you see him and you're like, oh. Like, right before they said his name, I was like, oh, this is Mr. Manette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like my notes are, are we in New York City? Yeah. They specifically say it coming up but there's like these hints to let you know that we're not in california because they keep talking about well, how they have an establishment shot of the brooklyn bridge oh that's right yeah so yeah yeah i mean it looks a little weird because it does not look like modern new york yeah 70s new york it does not look the same but anyway uh he gets a phone call from richie he's calling to break the news that tony is not coming back right now he wants to go over go after Rockford. And this is a big disappointment to Manette. This conversation is Richie breaking the bad news to Manette because Manette is kind of holding out all these promises, right? I'm going to give your mom a house. I'm going to give you a job. I just Mm -hmm. need you to help me get Tony back. Um, And I think Richie knows that this isn't going to go great for Tony. Yeah. He basically, so Manette basically, in my notes, I say that he leans on Richie. He kind of uses veiled threats of taking away all those things that he's promised if yeah. uh, he doesn't get get what he wants. Richie mentions that he, he's going to try and find Syl, who he knows is still in the area. Remember, Syl was his partner mm-hmm. from uh, To Protect and Serve. Um, and Minette says that he wants Richie to stay in California, give him a call each night, tell him what's going on. We'll, they'll go from there. Uh, Richie does finally, he, he keeps back that Tony's going after Rockford until, you know, all that pressure is put on him. And then he finally, you know, says, yeah, he's going after for this guy Rockford. Manette uh, tells his goon to go get the chin and Murph. <laughs> and then we end the scene with a dramatic sigh as he looks into the camera and goes, Rockford. Yeah. So a few things. Number one, well, okay, the chin. The chin. Let's just say, like, exquisite. Uh, I love this feeling that Tony Boy, uh, the mob, <laughs> and the IRS are all kind of <laughs> converging on Rockford right at the same time. The only thing that can make that even better is if Angel showed up. But <laughs> the other bit, uh, you, you had mentioned that like um, Richie knows that this might not work out well for Anthony Boyd. And I think that there's uh, – I don't think there's a moment, like an aha moment for Richie. But I think somewhere from the beginning where he's talking to Tony about – uh, all the things that Minette's going to do for them to uh, somewhere midway through the episode is where Richie, I think there's a journey that Richie's on and it's yes, fun yeah. to watch. Oh, for sure. Well, that's the thing. This is the, this, this scene is where I was like, Oh, Richie's going to be important. Yes. So like in this scene to me, it's, it, 
questionable whether Richie uh, is being played, is being played because he wants to be played. He doesn't want to face what the truth is Mm -hmm. or is just being completely naive. Mm -hmm. I like that because those will converge at a tragic point in uh, this episode. And uh, it's well done. I think he wants to think that everything is going to be fine. Yeah. But he knows in his heart who Minette is and how things work. And he doesn't know exactly what Minette wants with Tony. Right. But like he is he is apprehensive about giving Minette the information he needs to find Tony. At the, yeah, at the very end of the conversation where he's like, I just need to know, and Manette won't tell Doesn't him. Doesn't say anything, yeah. Yeah, that I think is like a big step towards Richie understanding hmm. what he's setting in motion here. Uh, we go to Tony eating dinner with Syl and oh. his uh, family, for lack of a better term. Syl has done... All right for him. Syl has done pretty okay. Syl and Tony, they're facing across the table. There are two, mm-hmm. like, young children, mm-hmm. tween, tween age, uh, and a, and a blonde woman who is, like, serving dinner, and everyone is clearly uncomfortable. You're forgetting Syl's mustache, too. His mustache <laughs> is, his mustache looks like it has not been trimmed since the last episode. Yes. Three years ago. <laughs> There's a bit of a gag uh, after the table is cleared. Oh, yeah. Oh, let's see. Uh, We had ginger with the main dish. What's for dessert? Cake with pork frosting? What do you got to antagonize her for, huh? Ah, <laughs> uh, he would not have survived in 2019. No. So, yeah, that's all establishing that, you know, Syl has something going on. Tony is making everyone uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. They go outside to talk uh, with some cigars. And Syl says he's not going to go to L.A. Uh, he has a good thing going on. There's a lot here. <laughs> the scene is like, gives us their backstory. Right. Tells us what Syl has been up to. And illustrates for us the magnitude of Tony's obsession. Right. Plus brings in how much Tony hates California. Uh, one one of the things that I'm, I'm really digging off of Tony in here uh, that I'm, I'll also state in case Rocky's listening, uh, I disagree with, uh, but is he is rendering moral judgment on the culture of California, mm-hmm. right? Uh, here's a mobster who's killed 30 some people. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> who is clearly in the wrong about everything, who uh, thinks that he can turn his nose up at uh, ginger beef. Well, because ginger belongs with dessert. It's a gag, but it's not a throwaway line. that He like asks the kid about football, mm-hmm. and the kid says, I'm not into competitive athletics. And that, for Tony, is like, what the hell are you raising here? Like, yeah. this is amoral. <laughs> yeah, you've broken the social contract. Right. Your kids don't like football. This is part of this, the ethical picture of Tony uh, that I'm enjoying because he's so wrong about so many things, uh, but he gets to have the confidence of someone who thinks they're right, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he, he gets that righteousness by turning his nose up on California. A little while later, that's going to um, turn into a really interesting argument that doesn't go that far. Right. But this one, I feel like the end of the argument is Tony just laying out the stakes that he's not going yeah. to stop at anything because he threatens the kids, right? Yes. He's- yeah. So the the deal is that, you know, Syl got out early on this like work furlough program because he also, right. you know, got arrested at the end of that episode. 
that was for this woman who now he's living with. She runs an art gallery. It's a good business. He's learning a lot about art. The kids are great. Yeah. It's not even like I'm turning my life around. It's more like somehow I ended up here and this is great. Right. You know, you gotta, you gotta root for Syl here. Yeah. I'm not going around in cars, killing people for mob bosses. I'm just learning about art and raising some kids who don't like football. Yep. (laughs) Tony appeals to their past together. He saved his life. They were always partners and he really, uh, I forget what word he uses in my notes. I, I typed, uh, he really needs his help. And then I actually deleted that and said he really wants his help. Yeah. Like, I don't remember if he uses the word need. But the way that it's acted here, clearly, it's important to Tony that Syl be on his side. Yeah. Hey, Syl, this means a lot to me, a whole lot. So I'm going to be blunt. Either you come with me or I do the kids. You try, you got to come right through me, you understand? You want to do it? You want to put it to the test? After all these years, that's one thing we never did, Syl. You want to try it? But I mean, my notes at that moment is just holy. Like no veiled threat, just yeah, yeah. This is this is the the uh, I think the fun again false moral argument at the center of this. Like several people are going to be making these loyalty arguments, yeah. mm-hmm. and this is one where he's literally threatening his maybe not adopted, but like certainly his family. Yeah, and uh, still uses this loyalty morality language. To bring Syl around. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'll just mark here if we can maybe remember to connect back. But this point about how important it is to Tony to have a partner in this actually comes back. Yeah. Which I'm just realizing now. So that's a nice. (laughs) Yeah, that's why we do this for our own edification. Well, we go back to Jim. Oh, the day after. (laughs) Um, So we get a lot of good, uh, you know, Jim stumbling around moaning at rocky (laughs) being mad because he's in pain which makes sense Mm -hmm. his accountant is going on vacation but she's going to a cabin she said that he can bring bring his shoeboxes up and they can have a working (laughs) vacation she's willing to do that for him yeah that's great uh jim says that he can't take a break though with his irs audit he needs to scare up work Mm because he knows he's going to be paying money (laughs) <laughs> and that's when he notices a blue sedan that's been in the parking lot all morning. Uh, so we go to the sedan and we have a couple of goons. Yeah. Cigar smoking goon who turns out to be Murph and the driving goon who turns out to be the chin. They have a bit of dialogue to establish that they're waiting for Tony. And then just suddenly Jim just pops up in the window. Hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I love how direct this is. He's still got a cheek full of cotton. Yeah. He's still... Recovering from the oral surgery, and we get an angle really quickly that shows that he has brought his gun. Like he, we have the shot where his he's looking in the car, so we're looking across Murph at his face, and then reverse shot, and we see his gun tucked in his waistband. Yeah, and they have a bit of uh, pretending to be friendly. Yes, as you do, <laughs> as you do, and then uh, they say they're going to leave, and then in a very Rockfordian move, uh, Murph, who's sitting <laughs> at the passenger door, hits him with the door and then comes out after him the other goon the chin uh gets out and has a he has a gun and he's like taking aim as the two of them roll around on the uh on the pavement a bunch of people run out of a neighboring trailer like hey what's going on and then he turns around and points the gun at them and they're like oh he has a gun and they all run away again But this concludes with uh, Murph just punching Jim right oh. in the swollen side of his jaw, and they take off. I winced. Yeah, it's like, ooh. 
there's television that little, little actions or things that happen that I'm like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have made that noise. <laughs> Sorry. There's little like moments of violence in television and the movies that you physically feel yeah. in some way, right? I confessed recently that like any time somebody falls downstairs, I don't know why, but I feel it. It my whole body just clenches up. I must have fallen down some stairs as a kid or something. <laughs> but a lot of times when punches are thrown in the Rockford Files, it's, you know, hams and steaks, mm-hmm. right? Like you just got these meaty things and you're just like, okay, yeah, whatever. But this one, because of the whole setup, because we know that he just had the oral surgery and, and how bad he's feeling, like, man, I felt that one. Yeah. I like recoiled in horror. It cuts the commercial right after that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oof. <laughs> you don't want to watch this. Uh, so we come back and Jim's still on the ground with the, all those people around him. <laughs> and someone hands him his gun <laughs> as he, as Rocky helps him up, which I kind of thought might turn into something. But I think it was just a, a bit of a gag. Uh, but Rocky thinks that Jim should take Dennis's advice. And Jim agrees. It's time for him to take that vacation he's always wanted. <laughs> Cut to Rocky's house where Adriana is going through shoeboxes saying this is untenable. <laughs> Jim's mad at Rocky because Rocky messed with his system. Uh, he has his filing system for putting all the receipts in one shoebox, but then Rocky started separating them out alphabetically by month, which is not <laughs> helpful because that means April is is gone. So it seems like a, a fraught situation, uh, but they're trying to get all the documents together so they can go to the cabin. Mm-hmm. As foretold, what could make this episode better? Behold, Angel. Looking real scruffy. Yeah. Okay, so any moment that's tense, for whatever reason, having Angel show up is great. Uh, the fact that there is an accountant in the room, <laughs> well, it actually uh, foreshadows a scene way later on. Yeah. But it's just Angels can't wait to tell Jimbo about the scam that he's got cooked up, that he wants Jimbo to not participate in, but to fund in certain ways. There's this like casino night scam at this church in Pennsylvania that these other con artists that Jim is also acquainted with are running with Angel. But uh, Angel just wants Jim to front him the plane fare because the church can't afford to bring him out on their own dime. Yeah. And then Jim just calls him out. He's like, you're going to scam a church? Like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) And Angel replies with, uh, okay, fine. Look, just front me the fare. And I promise you, 30% return on your money. Yes. (laughs) Rocky is horrified. Uh, As he should be. Jim finally says, like, this is, uh, you know, I have to get all this stuff together for my IRS audit. (laughs) And he mentions he's going to go up to this cabin to get it all sorted. So they do give us a shot of of Angel's face looking kind of ill when the IRS is mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of just fades. Like, the camera goes away from him. And I realized at the beginning of the next scene that we never saw him leave. Right. Because <laughs> um, we end that scene with uh, Adriana saying that, like, this is systematic of the whole problem. Why do you keep your records at Rocky's house in the first place? Right. And Jim talks about how hard it is to, you know, how hard it is running a business out of a trailer that you also live <laughs> in. And you can't deduct that, by the way. <laughs> Uh, Rocky finally remembers where those boxes are because it's a reference to a to a record that rhymes with April and it's a whole it's a whole thing. A couple things about the scene. Number one, the Our Lady of the Highway near the Turnpike is yes. a great name for a church. <laughs> um, it's easy to tell Angel's 
purpose in the scene about halfway through. In the beginning, I I think my instinct is that Angel is just here to add some new kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, as they start barfing more information at Angel, I realize, oh, Angel is the conduit through which whoever needs to find Jim will find him, right? Yes. Like, that's sort of the purpose of Angel. He's the uh, message board. Yeah, because, like, if it wasn't Angel, it would have to be Rocky, right? Right, exactly. And you don't want, nobody wants it to be Rocky. Yeah, we already have enough endangerment in this episode. Yeah. I don't know if bringing Rocky in would really be great. Um, no, it's fun. I mean, Angel's always fun. And also Angel sets up uh, the, the scene at the end with Angel also is yeah kind of necessary for Jim's storyline. Like, this episode is about Anthony Boy, but right. Jim is doing stuff. And there needs to be a resolution for him as well. And Angel's part of that. In the beginning when I said, like, if this ended up being a series finale, uh, the extra three minutes, I think, would be this storyline here. Yeah. I think part of what happens here, along with what happens with Anthony Boy, that leads Jim to either quit the business or, you know, like, some mm-hmm. make some sort of... Or steadfastly refuse to quit the business or something. Like, but, you know... This could have come to a crisis point as well, uh, if that was what your intention was, was to end the whole thing. Uh, well, as I mentioned, we never saw Angel leave, but we do yes. see Angel arrive at Jim's trailer where he picks the lock, uh, rolls on in, takes a beer out of the fridge, sprays it all over himself, opening it because he's moving so quickly, goes and sits down at Jim's desk and calls the restaurant across the way, claiming to be to be Joe Rockford, Jim's dad, and yes. orders in a dinner. A steak and champagne. Just have the boy wrap it up real nice in tinfoil and leave it on the front step. Put it on my tab. Oh. Angel. So angel. All right, we get back to Tony. Uh, Tony and Syl have been driving for 12 hours because apparently Syl was living in San Francisco. <laughs> so uh, Tony is taking swigs out of a Pepto-Bismol bottle, I think, this whole this whole scene. Yes. <laughs> we had the exposition about how he had like a liver injury. And then he also mentioned in the last scene how like, didn't you notice I had to get up so many times at dinner? Yeah. He had some physical ailments related from some permanent damage, right? Yeah. And there's, I, I think, like a little bit of a, a time bomb, a countdown associated with it. Like, the, nothing said. Like, it's not like a fatal injury or anything like that. But I think that that adds a little bit to his nothing left to lose sure. attitude, you know. And this is where we get a, one of our first big kind of soliloquies about how right. boring and terrible California is. <laughs> Those brown hills, mile after mile. And no people, nobody. And then once in a while you see a gas station all lit up with the fluorescence, like, uh, what kind of place is this? That was the San Joaquin Valley, that's all. Route 5 is the fastest way down here from Frisco. San Joaquin Valley? Reminds me of pictures I've seen of hell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't necessarily disagree with <laughs> I mean, that per- I haven't done that particular drive, but I'm sure it's a little boring. I've done some California. Well, actually, my problem is uh, that I get I can get car sick on really windy things. Right. So if you take the Pacific Coast Highway, that's rough. <laughs> my experience of driving through California, sitting in the back seat of a car, going through that, and just yeah. being like, I hate everything. That's not exactly what he was describing here. He's had this nightmare. He says he has this nightmare and Syl doesn't say anything. And then he's like, what, you're not going to ask me about my nightmare? <laughs> yeah, I love that. 
you know, it's a illustrative little anecdote about it's after his dad died and he's watching, uh, he's in the stands at a baseball game. Yeah. You know, there's a baseball player that you would know at the time, I suppose, who he was referring to if you were a uh, baseball fan. But then he turns around and his face is a skull, um, you know, dramatic stuff. So first of all, I, yes, I love that he's like, I had a really terrible dream. Thanks for asking me about it. Like, <laughs> but also, uh, it, when he, when he's asked about it, he's like, I don't remember much of it. And then gives the most detailed yeah. account of a dream. Like, uh, but this baseball player, okay. This is okay. We're going to get weird now. Okay. Ready? I'm ready. Early on in this episode, when Jim is high, I think it's when he sits down on the couch, he says a name. Oh, yeah. Eugene Paulette. And when we were just talking about that scene earlier, I Googled it, and the best I can come up with was Gene Paulette, who is a uh, major league infielder, hmm. according to Wikipedia. So now I'm wondering what baseball player he's talking about. Because that name was out of nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. I think he, like Rocky did something and he was like, what are you, Gene Paulette? Or something like that. I'm just wondering if like if Jim had like a drug-induced <laughs> vision of Tony's dream. <laughs> okay. You can forget me now. Uh, that's clearly <laughs> not the kind of stories that they write for the Rockford Files. It certainly uh, would be a Twin Peaks episode, though. Um, yeah. So this is, you know, a lot about how much Tony hates California, uh, yeah. including that he doesn't want to. I think Phil maybe says, like, hey, let's get something to eat. And he's like, we're almost there. Besides, I don't want to go near no more tacos and chili dogs and sandwiches with alfalfa spouts on them. You people eat garbage out here. I think it's on that line that Syl pulls over. Which I appreciate. I think Syl likes California food. I think so. Uh, he does. I think he says al, uh, alfalfa spouts. There's a few moments in yeah, here where, where he I just think, says like the wrong word for things. Yeah. And I think that's like a character trait. Yeah, it's on purpose. And I'm trying to remember if if, if those occurred at all in the previous uh, To Protect or Serve. I don't remember them, but he also doesn't. Like, they don't have as much screen time in that episode. Yeah, yeah. Because not, it's not about them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, Syl pulls over, and his deal's like, you made me do this. You're making me drive you down here and do this hit, and you don't even appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You're acting like a jerk. You're yelling at yeah. me. Like, come on, man. <laughs> at least make it pleasant for me. And then Tony has his next thing, which is that he now sills like all the rest. I don't know where I stand with you. Back in New York, you walk into a deli and order a sandwich. You know where you stand. Right away, the guy's giving you a hard time because he hates his job and he hates you for wanting the sandwich, so he makes your life miserable. Here you walk in, it's... Morning, sir. How are you today, sir? What would you like, sir? And they don't mean none of it. They hate you. They're just friendly, Tony. Life is different here. Friendly? It's sick. Yeah. (laughs) This does get into a brawl and they exchange some punches. There's this moment in this debate. I think it's before the brawl um, where uh, Tony's big point is that like, yeah, they're mobsters. I don't think he says that, but Mm -hmm. like. But here in California, you have cultists. He's like, sure, we kill people, but it's like on purpose and for a reason. And here you right. have these guys with a bad haircut who just go crazy, you know, and just you know yeah. knock off 17 random people that they don't even know. Charlie Manson, almost invariably. I think that's what, what he's doing <laughs> here. But like, it, it's great because, again, it's, it's Tony trying to play this moral high card. Well, he talks about values. 
Yes. They have some punches and Tony has the, has the upper hand and he talks about the time that he saved Sill's life. It goes into detail about it. Push him out of the way of this other guy who was coming after him. But then he caught up with him later and like shot him in his car where he was bragging to all his buddies. Like, yeah, it's very yeah. specific. And he's like, and I did that for you. Right. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Values. And Sill is kind of, you know, what's he going to do? Yes. <laughs> he ends up getting back behind the wheel and we have a, another swig of the Pepto as uh, they <sighs> roll on down the highway. We have a quick cut where we see that Angel is making a long distance call from Jim's phone and uh, he is in the wrong place as Tony and Syl roll up outside the trailer. Oh, Angel. <laughs> you, were, you were doing what you were sent to this earth to do. <laughs> they hear the voices or they hear his voice. Yeah. They come on in. Angel at first is like, I told you, just leave it on the step. Uh, <laughs> yes. But then he's like, oh, well, if you have personal business with, with Jim Rockford, I could probably help you for, you know, 10, 15. <laughs> Angel's just straight up asking for a bribe, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. <laughs> it's not a high amount. And he would give the information if he were bribed. But right. Tony goes straight to violence. <laughs> like horrifying violence. Horrifying too, violence. Yeah. yeah. He grabs Angel's head. Puts him in this like twisty headlock, has this line about howdy doody and how his hit, his head would spin all the way around. And then mm-hmm. he tells Syl to get the ball peen hammer out of his pocket. <laughs> and Syl, with the most, oh, this again, look on his face. Yes. <laughs> pulls the ball peen ha- hammer out of Tony's pocket. This is, I don't think it had been, it had, it's come up in this episode, but in To Protect and Serve, they talked about the time that Tony, you know, killed a guy with a ball peen hammer. And I think we talked about how like awful that specific detail yeah. is. And yeah. apparently that's, that's his signature. Um, Angel does not take much convincing. He spills the whole thing about the accountant and where they went, tells him what they want to know. And then Tony pulls a gun <laughs> and still says that he, look, he didn't sign up for more than one hit. This guy's a, I think he says he's a career squirrel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that becomes a moniker that they use for him throughout the rest of the right. episode. Yeah, Angel says, I don't know anything. I can't even talk. I'm mute. Yes. Come tomorrow morning, I'll, I'll be selling sign language cards at the bus station. <laughs> oh, Angel. That talks Tony down, apparently. And, of course, they uh, walk directly through the nicely wrapped dinner and bottle of champagne that was on the step <laughs> as they leave. Rockford can't even get food that he wasn't going to get. Before they go to Lake Arrowhead, they have to go see Tony's cousin who lives in L.A. or else he'll never hear the end of it from Ma. <laughs> cousin Conchetta. So they walk up, knock, don't get a response, start to turn around. And then, of course, the door opens as they're walking away. And uh, it turns out that it's not just Cousin Conchetta, but Richie and Ma are there as well. And Tony seems to be pretty surprised because he, he, you know, he told them to go home. Right. Not what he had in mind. Uh, Ma tries to get him to eat, offers him, asks if he wants a sandwich. And I think on the word sandwich, he can't take it anymore. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to hear no more about sandwiches, peppers, and then eating. That's all his family is, is one big, gigantic digestive tract. It's like an obsession. <laughs> it's like an obsession. It's like an obsession. Uh, Ma starts crying. Richie's like, I can't, I can't with this family. Like, this right. happens every time. He's like, I'm going to go get an aspirin because I get a headache. But he leaves and goes down to the car. Yes. And so we see him do a quick search and pull a map out of their glove box where Lego Arrowhead is circled. And there's a little note with Adriana's name next to it, too. So that we know for sure what they know. And we know for sure that Richie knows. By the time Tony and Syl come back out, uh, 
Richie has gotten out of the car and pretends like he was just checking the mail. A comment, apparently Richie had worked for the Postal Service briefly uh, (laughs) and couldn't hold that job. So it's ironic that he should be so concerned about checking the mail now. The scene ends with Richie telling Tony to wait. Mm -hmm. And Tony says, what? You know, spit it out. And then Richie can't say anything. He's just looking at him. He wants to warn his brother. Or something somewhere, somewhere deep inside, he wants to warn his brother, but he doesn't know what to say. Yeah, because he chose to see where Tony's going. Yeah, he's snooping. He knows that the information he's going to use, he has to know the information he's going to use will come to no good. Right. Yeah, because this is on behalf of Manette, because his job now is to tell Manette what's going on with Tony. Yeah. So he's doing that, but he knows that it's not going to go well, I think, but doesn't know what to say or how to say it. Happy, I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the Information Superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games... Maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com, where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the Worldwide Wrestling, Pro Wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right, well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. So we go from that drama to a drama of a different sort, uh, to the cabin at Lake Arrowhead. As our local tax preparer extraordinaire, tell us about this scene, Epi. This scene has my favorite line. Uh, What's happening here is Adriana is trying to explain to Jim that none of his tax loopholes work. (laughs) Part of what's going on is that he is trying to depreciate or uh, write off things that he's bought years ago that no longer have any value. And which leads to my favorite line. Mm -mm. They're not going to allow that. 74, 75, 76, and 77. Well, the thing's been depreciated so much, there's nothing left but pure energy. No mass. (laughs) <laughs> they've evaporated as far as the irs is concerned this is not, they're not a running expense because you couldn't possibly still be using this you should have replaced it by now specifically she's referring to his uh, answering machine yes his answering tape machine or however <laughs> yeah. they phrase it so again we're looking at a episode that may have been the final episode or whatever <laughs> and, and it's just saying like you're outdated Mm-mm. this this shouldn't work this also sets up a little bit of the there's a there's a gag going on underneath all this about a camera, right? Which is newish and therefore can save him some money. Um, that uh, he has lent to Angel because he's oh my god, I guess a creature of habit. I don't know what, but anyways. or or Angel stole it and keeps on promising to give it back. <laughs> Right. 
But I think I, I love that line. I love that, like, this whole setup here. This is a vaguely romantic getaway. It's a cabin up in the hills, uh, but it's over his books. Among other things, he can't write off the Christmas gift of Scott, of a case of scotch that he gave to Becker. Yes. It's like, but we work together. So, and she rightfully points out that. Uh, he probably doesn't want that looked into anyways, right? right. Like, this is, yeah. that is highly illegal. But then he has this thing, well, what about the other gift I gave him that was a personal gift, which were long matches for his fireplace? <laughs> uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff. He has a line where he says that he feels like he's, she's not letting him deduct anything. Uh, he feels like he's getting a D on his examination or something yeah. <laughs> like that. And I was like, I, I understand that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bad system. Yeah. And it was worse probably in the 70s. Like, mm. that's the other thing. Yeah, there's probably no uh, standard deduction. Yeah. And so you want to get credit for legitimate business expenses, you know, meant for operating your business. Not to turn this into a tax lecture, but somebody like Jim, is going to be in a situation where there are things that don't look like that somebody like us, mm -hmm. anybody else who buys a game, that's for entertainment. Yeah, but also we make games. It's important for us to understand what the right. state of the art is and to its professional development. Mm -hmm. And like you could joke about that being a wiggle room, but that's not really wiggle room. You can't right. design in a vacuum. Uh, same here. Later on, we'll have this joke about Jim having an extravagant vacation. Mm -hmm. Right, but he's setting himself up in a role for a job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then when you have to justify that all to some third party, right. then, yeah, you get that feeling. Fortunately, before it gets too <laughs> stressful or too romantic, Angel covered in bandages. <laughs> yeah, there's a moment where it's like, all right, let's not, you know, let's get some dinner. Enough of this for today. And I think this is the only, like, romantic moment where it's right. like, okay, let's have some dinner. Right. And then she asks, what flavor of milkshake do you want? And he immediately <laughs> yes. gets mad again because he's sick of milkshakes. He just wants a pork chop or fried chicken or chicken fried steak. Yes. And then Angel arrives. Um, yeah, so we know he's been beat up because of the bandage around his head. He says that he was only in the trailer because he was returning Jim's camera. <laughs> yes. And that they worked him over for hours. And Jim's like, okay, how many minutes until you squealed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Jim knows exactly how Angel operates. Yeah. Um, but Angel is legitimately trying to help because he's trying to warn Jim that Tony and Syl know where he is. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like one of the few times where we see a demonstration of the actual friendship between Jim yeah. and Angel. <laughs> There's every incentive for Angel just to pretend that he doesn't know what's going to happen. Right. Uh, but, you know, maybe if there was a phone, he would have just called. But there's no phone at the cabin. So he made the effort, even though he knows he's putting himself in harm's way. And I think Jim realizes that kind of at the end of the scene after yelling at him for all the ways in which he is a failure. <laughs> Yes. We then go to this really interesting scene where it's almost entirely or entirely, I don't remember exactly, this upshot from the car. So Syl and Tony are in the car. Yeah. And the camera is kind of like in the door panel of Tony's side. So it's this upshot on the two of them as they have this conversation. Uh, I feel like this is probably a scene that would, would have just been cut out entirely of the 60 minute version. Again, we're watching a movie about Tony Boy. <laughs> Right. It just happens to have Rockford in it. It's not 
a vital scene, but it's certainly an interesting scene. It's got some good humor in it, right? Tony mm-hmm. half reads Death of a Salesman and right. has some philosophies built off of it. it. I think if you were to cut things down to a 60 minute, you know, to a television a regular time slot, this would definitely be mm-hmm. an easy one to remove uh, without losing the tension or the drama mm-hmm. that already exists in the episode. The point here is is about loyalty, right? So he uses yeah. this anecdote about how he, he started reading Death of a Salesman while he was in prison because it took place in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He got to the part where, you know, he worked for a guy for 40 years, then he went in to talk to him and he's going to get fired. You work for a guy for 40 years, then he fires you. What kind of life is that? Um, and so he's like, that's kind of like me and Manette. That's the right. parallel he's drawing. He knows that Manette doesn't have anything in mind for him. And so he doesn't owe Manette anything no loyalty what happened in the end i never finished it but willie's got these two sons see biff and happy so i figure he takes his two sons down there pops howard and takes over the company (laughs) not how death of a salesman ends I do like that he's he's got his own fanfic ending, though. Uh, at the cabin, uh, Jim, Angel, and Adriana are just about to leave when they see the car approaching. Angel is the canary in the coal mine here, right? He's the one who's finely tuned preservation instincts. Mm-hmm. He hears something and he just sits bold right and he's like, Jimmy! Yeah. <laughs> like, that, it's, it's great. Things happen pretty quick, right? We're getting mm-hmm. some like more exciting action drama here. Everyone kind of knows what's going on. There's no mystery here. <laughs> like mm-hmm. everyone knows who's who's there because they because Sue and Tony see Angel's car, so mm-hmm. they know that he's the squirrels here. Um, Jim tells them to go to the back of the house, asks if there's a gun anywhere. There is a gun or there's a rifle in the hall closet that one of the partners right. uses to <laughs> shoot groundhogs, and Jim goes and gets it, and turns out it's a pellet gun. <laughs> But he does try to use it as a bluff to uh, be like, hey, hey, Tony, your beef is with me. We can talk about this. My friends have nothing to do with it. Let them go. But of course, Anthony Boyd does not go for it. He has a line where he's like, I can pick you and your buddy off like cans, which Mm -hmm. I think is such a delightful line because that's exactly what you would be shooting with a pellet gun. And so he says that he'll he'll bluff them in front long enough for Mm -hmm. uh, Adriana and Angel to leave out the back. And as part of that, he does take a shot and it grazes (laughs) Tony's cheek. It's a good shot. It's a good shot. And it's like, oh, it's a pellet gun. Like if he'd missed it, maybe it would be different, even though it doesn't sound like a rifle either. Right. But like because he hit him, it's like, oh, that's not a threat to me. Angel scrammed even before Jim told them to get out the back. So he's already down the hill at this boat and trying to get the motor started. Uh, So this has already brought... Sill's attention, who has a shotgun. So he comes around the side of the house. Adriana runs back inside. Sill goes after Angel. The business with the boat is is great because it's he never unties the boat no. to begin with. He can't start the engine. Then he pulls out the the oar and he tries to row a boat that's still tied to the dock. It's very Angel panic fleeing here. Yeah. Um, this ends with Angel jumping out of the boat after he can't get anywhere. Uh, Sill chases him, does take a shot at him where Angel like pretends that it hit him and just like falls over or his feet slip out from under him. Tony shoots because there's this moment where Sill looks at the barrel of his own gun Mm-hmm. As if surprised when he heard the sound, like, wait, I didn't fire this, which is more for the audience, right? Because a shotgun, you would know if that went off or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, I actually rewound and watched this over because hmm. I, I was like, I couldn't quite make out what happened. And I think what happened was Tony took a shot. I don't know if he took a shot at Angel or just took a shot. Angel acted like he was shot. <laughs> yeah, pretended that he was dead. And there was just this moment where Syl is like, what is happening? <laughs> like, why is this guy behaving this way? And then just picks him up. He just, like, pokes him, and then Angel, like, opens one eye, and he's like, come yeah. come on, squirrel. But yeah, I definitely, like, that. no, Angel wasn't shot, and I think might have gotten away with it if, <laughs> if Sil had taken a shot. Sure. Right, but he didn't. Mm. Anyways. Well, they now have Angel, so they use him as a hostage to get Jim yes. to come out. And we have this very dramatic, dark moment mm. where Jim, you know, hugs Adriana, tells her it's going to be okay. And then Syl and Tony bring in Angel, and they're all in the house, in the cabin. And Syl's like, all right, let's just do it and get out of here. But Tony doesn't want to do it bing bang boom he has he's had a lot a lot of time to think about this Mm -hmm. and he asks for his hammer and then still says that he left it in the trailer (laughs) still ends up being the accidental hero here yeah whether because he intentionally left it behind because he knew something like this would happen right or whether he's lying and you know Mm -hmm. knows you know how this could go so tony then says all right we're you know everyone take a seat he's going to see what kind of party favors are in this cabin (laughs) and uh he's going to talk to Rockford about old times and about the future. Very dramatic, very menacing, but this like point of violence is pushed off into the future. And there's another like malapropism. I think uh, he says you're a milestone instead of yeah, a millstone. Yeah, he says you're a milestone around my neck. Yeah, yeah. So with with that tension vibrating there, we then cut to oh. Minette in the back of a of a car pulling up to cousin Conchetta's house. Yes. And this is, oh boy, this is a hell of a scene. <laughs> this is a hell of a scene. Um, the, so, okay, th- th- before we go into the scene, no, no, let's go into the scene. Okay. <laughs> Bullet points about the scene. Yeah. First, Manette talks to Richie. So Manette's come out from Brooklyn. Right. To, to see to some things personally. First, he talks to Richie and he says that it's important to end this thing now and then everyone can get on with their lives. Um, and Richie's like, I can't sell out my brother. <laughs> Yeah. Like, he realizes what's happening. And Minette's like, let me make this clear. Tony has knowledge about me that could hurt me. Our bonds are weak. Like, whatever Mm -hmm. bonds we had, the two of us, they're weak now. Um, And I can't let him hurt me with his knowledge. Richie, I think we see, has has decided on a way to walk this line between his brother and right and him and, and his mother and he says that he can't sell out tony unless his mother can see that it's for the best right i do have information <laughs> i could tell you but i'm not going to unless my mom knows what's happening but right. i'm not going to tell her yeah so minette's a big smoothie with ma turns down her offer of coffee cake on account of his colon and he has this line which i just thought was so funny where he says uh, i got a young doctor he went to brandeis that's very funny to me just because i went to brandeis so so it stood out. <laughs> um, and also at this time, that's still a pretty new school. So because it only actually started in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So kind of saying like, I have this young, smart Jewish doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, go judges. Is that, is that the sports mascot? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I knew that. The Brandeis judges, I was... Go dice. The teams are the judges. <laughs> um, so now we have this conversation between Minette and Ma. More of a soliloquy on Minette's side. Minette's job here is to convince a mom into accepting her son's execution. Yes. It's a thing to behold. Like, I think they did it well. The mom yeah. is played for gags 
up until this point. Mm-hmm. She's like melodramatic before this scene. Um, and it's just all like, isn't mom such a hassle with her bad hip and her constant trying to feed us? Right. This scene, I think she does. I, I really enjoy watching her dance around. It's almost as if she wants this to happen, but she doesn't think she's allowed to want it to happen. Yeah. So it's this everyone coming to a place where they can agree that it's not anyone's fault, but Tony's right. Yes. Uh, she's, I think there's a lot of like things that are kind of implied Mm -hmm. by Manette's conversation, but something that's been established already is that Tony is in with the mob, but the rest of his family isn't his brother and his mom are not. And Mm -hmm. like, he doesn't want them to know, like he's always like kind of kept a separation there. And so Manette offering Mm -hmm. them things, Tony knows means that they're, he's trying to, bring them in mm-hmm. into the, the business, if you will. But it's all because Minette was like partners or friends with Mr. Uh, Gaglia. Uh, so, you know, his Tony's dad and uh, Richie's dad. So he... <laughs> Oh boy. So he, he talks about how much he respected the father and what a shame it was when he got like shot on the parkway by those, yeah, like by those goons or whatever. And I felt like there was a little edge there of like, is this implying that he, Manette, hit him? Yeah. The, I, There's nothing there. It was just a thought no. that I had yeah. kind of in the way that he said it. But then he took Anthony in. He acted like a father to him. But at what point is the boy more important than the family, the wife and the other son of the man that I respected? so much uh ma says that he never could be controlled he was always wild uh and she has this line where she says why couldn't i have a son like other mothers right and it's a little bit of like how much is he convincing her and how much is he giving her the room to acknowledge that it's going to happen whether she wants it or not right but it'll be easier for her if she buys in to the fact that it will happen, right? It'll be easier for her, like, both because she's dealing with an actual mobster and uh, it, that could be terrifying. Mm. Like you said, he's going to do it, so uh, why upset him? But also, there's that, that blood money aspect of it. She's mm-hmm. going to get that place in Maspeth, right? Yeah, he's offering her all these things, security, protection. Yeah, so there's there's that. There's the life for the family is going to be better. You won't be around all that violence. And the, all that violence feels like coded racism. Oh, yeah. Because they talk about how their neighborhood in Brooklyn was changing all around them. Yeah. So there's that. And then the sort of he's a loose cannon bit. He has somebody's going to have to deal with him. Right. Uh, why don't you let me take that burden on? Yeah. I, I really, really like this. Not because <laughs> I mean, it's horrible, mm-hmm. but I like it because it Minette, now we we see and we're like, oh, this is why he's the boss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He just talked a mom into allowing her son's ex. Like he, okay, this guy is really dangerous. He has a what I refer to as a hell of a monologue towards the end about standing at the Rubicon. Yes. <laughs> And how there comes a point in everyone's life where you have to make a painful decision, but through this pain comes the future. It's like, yes. Oof. Yeah. She uh, she says that she does. She just doesn't know what to do about her son. I want to help. It's the way Frank would want it. Yes. 
Maria Nucci was like a son to me, too. <laughs> Let me work it out with her, man. And she kind of has tears in her eyes and she nods. And that's that's the permission slash acknowledgement, right. right? Yeah. And at no point does he say, I'm going to kill your son, right? Like, we know what he's talking about. And I'm pretty right. sure she knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And part of making it happen is him not saying it out loud and saying, let me deal with it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Let me work it out with him. Uh, we have a shot of Richie's face where he looks pretty rough as he's been watching this whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you get the feeling that Richie... I don't want to say it's a gambit on Richie's part because Richie says, I'm not going to do it unless mom's on board, uh, so that he doesn't have to be blamed for it by mom. Right. Right. Mom's the one who, who agreed to it. But also he has to be thinking maybe he won't convince mom and that's our way out. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I think that during this is certainly when it just is completely evident to Richie mm-hmm. which way this is going to go down. And then the last shot of the scene is, is Ma sitting alone in the chair. Yeah. Like after everyone else left, just sitting with that, I don't know, decision, knowledge. Yeah. So here's my question. This is a great scene. I think it fits the theme of the entire Mm -hmm. episode. And uh, it gets us from uh, one standoff to another. It gets gets everything moving uh, the way it has to go. But I wonder if this was one of the ones that they would have cut, right? It's a chunk of time. And you can just assume that Richie told Minette Mm -hmm. and Minette's guys took Richie. I mean, I this is the stupidest kind of speculation because the answer is there. We could just go look. I, I suspect that it's probably cut up. That's probably yeah. the beginning of the scene and the end of the scene and a bunch of the conversation in the middle is probably cut out. Yeah. If it's not in the streaming version, then I'm I'm sorry, everyone. You're missing a yeah. some good <laughs> David Chase mob dialogue. <laughs> Uh, if nothing else. And then to put the button on this outside, he puts Richie in the car and says like, you know, hey, you're going to help these guys take care of it. And then sends them off by themselves. And he's like, wait a second. And then Minette takes yeah. a cab and he's he's out. Yep. He knew what he had to do. He's not going to witness this in person. He doesn't need to be there. But I think that's also like a little demonstration of why he's the boss. Right. Because now Richie's in too deep. Yeah. And yeah. he didn't even realize uh, what, what he was getting himself in for. Um, and I started noticing here, I think most of that scene didn't have any score. Um, and then I started noticing at this point that there was just, there was no music through the next scene. <laughs> so it's all very yeah dramatic. Uh, no underscore... Just watching the things happen. We have uh, Tony and Rockford in the cabin. Uh, Anthony Boy has his talks about all the fantasies he had about killing Jim, how he planned to do it. After he was done with the hammer, he's going to tie him up to a rock at the seashore and watch the tide come in. (laughs) Just like, ugh. I I do love that Jim's attitude towards all this is like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Old Jim, as we know, as long as he's talking, he's not getting killed, right? Like, keep him talking as long as possible. Uh, He tells Tony that once he's done with all this, he's not going to feel any better. You know, what is your deal with me? And that releases just this spew of spite from Tony. Is this with uh, football players, milk drinkers? Yes, I was only peripherally involved in that thing up in Oxnard. The police shot you. I didn't. So what is it? What is it? What is it? I'll tell you what it is. Guys like you, you're all over the place eating your stinking cheeseburgers, clogging up the streets on your stupid, lousy Sunday drives. Football players, milk drinkers, funny boys. Hey, Tony. Shut up. 
Guys like you, Rockford, and guys like me, we can't live here together. You make this planet a toilet for me to live in. <laughs> and so he's he's focused all of his anger, his his pain, his uh, I don't know all the tragedies of his life. He's made Rockford the avatar of all these things that he hates about the world. <laughs> And other people who are in it. And uh, I think that's very clear. And it's also very like, I wouldn't say that it's played for laughs, but it is. Right. It has a little bit of, I don't know, over the topness to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's, he's. Um... Tony is, has attached so much to this moment and it just seems ridiculous to yeah. the impartial audience. Not impartial, but the audience observing this all, all coming out of him. Um, and I think what I like about it too and about the whole treatment of Tony through this whole thing, and we'll see this a little bit more, is that, like, at no point am I rooting for him, but I am getting more of an understanding of why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, there's a sympathy, like you said. Not one where you root for him, not where you want him to, to succeed, but definitely you're thinking, okay, this guy had some cards stacked against him. And he's in a he's in a bad situation. He's not making it any better, right? But he's certainly in a bad situation that isn't entirely of his construction. And that kind of mirrors again the the character from Protect and Serve, where like yeah, we kind of saw more and more of her problems, and we can understand why she's acting the way she is, even while being like, "You are making things very worse. Yes. You need to stop doing this." Sill uh, hears a car outside uh, and looks out. Out and they recognize Murph in the chin, and they know that you know Manette's guys have come to come for them. Uh, there's a, a great Rockford line here because Sill is like, maybe they're coming to tell you about the new job. <laughs> and Rockford's like, I don't think they came here to give you the keys to the executive washroom. Oh no, I think they came up the mountains to hunt. <laughs> yeah, and this is like the real trick of this episode, like how seamless this is. I think. Yeah. All of a sudden. Yeah. Everyone in the cabin is united against the guys outside the cabin. Yes. So Tony and Murph start yelling back and forth. Again, a little bit of false friendliness. Tony actually takes the first shot because, as he says, <laughs> they're out to blow us away. <laughs> There's another wonderful... Because Syl was like, why'd you do that? And he's like, because I thought I'd hit them, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> they hear Richie yelling, and we just see Tony just deflate. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, my brother's out here. Uh, Richie, Richie says that they just want to talk, it's about the family, and Tony, I think we just see on his face that Tony realizes what must have happened. Mm -hmm. um, he tells Richie to come in alone, and there's this pause, just this pregnant pause, and his eyes start getting weepy, and, his, and he's like holding back tears in this moment. Sorry you can't come in, Richie! Remember I used to tell you about the alligators under the bed and scare you? They were really there, kid. I know. I saw them. Yeah. Title. Sill tries to get to Tony and he crosses in front of a window and gets shot. Sill. There's a great Rockford moment here, though, right? Yes. Uh, there's this great framing here where Rockford and Adriana and Angel kind of are like trying to help Sill. And they're in the foreground in like mm -hmm. the middle of the cabin. And Tony is, so he's a tall guy, right? He's all hunched over, kind of with his knees drawn up underneath the window with his gun. And he's in the background. So mm -hmm. he's like foreshortened to be even, I don't know if that's the right way to use that, but he's, he's even like smaller. Yeah. Uh, since he's in the background of the shot. And that's where 
this dialogue happens where he's acting like he's in charge, but the camera is showing us the dynamic where Rockford is taking control because he actually can operate under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tony says he, he lived like a dog so his brother could go to college and he has all these things, all these things he's done to keep the family out of this kind of business. And now it's all coming home to roost. I don't know if this is the moment you're thinking of, but Rockford finally says like, you know, hey, we need to make a plan. It's like, we don't need a plan. I can hold them off. Yeah, sure. Until dark. And then they can just come in wherever they want. We need to make a plan. You need a partner. Uh, you can't do things by yourself. Yeah. I know, like, I know guys like you. You need someone else. So Jim and Angel then start trying to make a plan while Tony just like yells at them in the background. Uh, and they come up with this idea where they need a they need a fireball to be a distraction. Yes. Well, more than a distraction, there's fire towers. Mm. They don't have a phone. That's how they're going to get the authorities mm, up on the yes, hill. Yes, yes. Um, the music then kicks back in as yeah. Jim uh, climbs up onto the roof with a uh, with a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> um, Tony takes a couple shots to cover him, and Jim just lobs this directly into, of course, Angel's car, <laughs> which is this like open top convertible. Now, leading up to this moment, Angel has been one. Hundred percent behind a Molotov cocktail. He likes the plan. Yeah, this plan. The plan varies a couple times in nuance, uh, and each time Angel's just yeah, whatever, just set something on fire. Let's. Uh, and then he gets up onto the top of the roof, and I look over, and I'm just in my notes. Angel's car, <laughs> <laughs> and then ooh, goes over. And then we get. I think Angel has named his car Lucille. I think so because Angel. Uh, suddenly realizes what the plan means, what he's sacrificing right. for this cause. So, yeah, the car explodes uh, and then starts smoking um, under the cover of the smoke. Uh, they sneak out of the cabin. Murph and the Chin say that they they can't make the job. The fire, you know, the fire department's going to be there in a few minutes. Um, it's time to get out of here. So they get back in their car and pull away before Richie can get there and they just leave Richie. Yes. So our action music then ends as everyone comes around the side of the cabin and then we have this kind of standoff where like Tony's like hold it you know he still has his gun he can still take out Rockford he doesn't care about <laughs> the cops you know this is it yeah but then Richie kind of comes down towards them and now this is where Tony's caught in his his uh, pressures right he wants to kill Rockford Rockford's right there he's been betrayed by his family Richie's right there and mm-hmm. he you know can't make a decision um he wants to see Richie's face I know what my what my thinks Richie says that Minette hypnotized them. Uh, right. Which is a fair. And Tony <laughs> replies like, that's what happens with snakes. They get hypnotized, which is both another weird <laughs> malapropism, yeah. but also exactly perfect. Yeah, exactly. And Jim says here that Tony can't get everything he wants. Mm-hmm. Richie turns to run and Tony just has this reaction and shoots him in the leg. It's hard to convey without seeing the actor's face, but we see that he realizes he's been betrayed. And now what is he going to do? Uh, Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh my god, I can't believe he shot his brother. It's like, is he going to shoot his brother? Because he's building up to it. Like, we yeah, see that yeah. through the conversation. Um, that gives Jim the opportunity to jump him. They struggle. Jim gets the, gets the upper hand, uh, leaves a few punches, and then, you know, he's all adrenaline up, right? It's like, you know, is that all you had? Like, come on. Like, I thought you wanted to take me out. My notes are mean Jim. <laughs> yeah, he's mean. And Tony's on the ground. And in my notes, I say that he's clearly out of go juice. Yeah. He's out. He can't take another thing. He just stares up at, at Jim. And Jim ends the scene by looking at him and saying, bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Cut to calculator. Yes. 
My favorite moment of the show. Uh, I don't know this calculator. I mean, it's more of an adding machine than a calculator, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it came out in 79, I think. So mm-hmm. my main thing with this, and I know that uh, our audience is on the edge of the seats to hear this. Mm-hmm. I don't know the calculator. I was just kind of curious if this calculator was um, would present as high tech to the audience or not, right? Because I felt like that would be like now we have the IRS agent who <laughs> can afford the top of the line. But I honestly did not know what that calculator was. So I don't know. It looks, you know, appropriate for the time period. It yeah. doesn't seem particularly cutting edge to me, but uh, it might have been. We have ended Anthony Boy's story. Yeah. The movie is over. This is the post-credit sequence where we find out what happens to Jim. Yes. <laughs> the IRS accountant here is disallowing even more deductions than Adriana did. <laughs> Generally, the, the ethical thing to do for the tax preparer to be present during an audit. Yeah. And then Jim explains that, well, she's had a very traumatic week. In fact, we were <laughs> taken hostage in a cabin. There was a guy trying to kill me. He actually physically assaulted me. Like He goes through all these phrases kind of in a way being like, you're not going to believe this, but this right. is what happened. And the uh, the IRS uh, agent just no-sells all of it. Yeah. <laughs> He's unimpressed. And then continues asking about the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mm-hmm. angel still has not returned. Yes. And then this is, uh, and then he asks about this item for the like week and a half rental of a limousine. You see, I needed these things to establish my credibility uh, for my cover as a major overseas investor. Mr. Rockford, if you'll forgive my saying so, it seems like what we're talking about here is a confidence game. I mean, the Internal Revenue Service is not going to allow deductions based on con games or any other marginal activity. Mr. Seurat, I don't think you fully get the hang of the nature of my work. You see, these are things that private investigators do. They may not be pleasant and they may not fit any niche that the IRS has, but they are really legitimate uh, business expenses, totally above board. All right. I'll allow that expense. Speaking of legit businesses. <laughs> Here comes Angel. Um, so Angel shows up with these two other con men that he had mentioned earlier about this whole game with the church and everything. And so we get a little bit of a uh, callback to that. Um, Jim drops that the, uh, well, I can't really talk now. I have an IRS audit going on, but that apparently is not enough to clear them out. And so he, <laughs> uh, he, he gives the accountant a, uh, tells him to use the phone in his other room if he's going to, you know, to make his, his phone calls a little more privately. Mm-hmm. So that sets up the uh, ending gag here. Oh, God. Angel <laughs> runs down the con. It didn't work in Pennsylvania because... Because they were too suspicious or something. But they have a line on this new place in L.A. They ran a post-game analysis. <laughs> uh, and he uses all these lingo and like, we're going to run this kind of game. And all these highly suspicious terms. And all we need is someone with a strong, honest face like you. Yes. I love how Jim lights up at that. <laughs> he's like, ah, shucks. Like, yeah, he's obviously got a whole lot of things going on. He's got an IRS audit going on. The last thing he needs is Angel in his trailer just shouting <laughs> criminal activity at him. But the moment when Angel just mentions that, uh, but of course, we need someone who plays to Jim's strengths, he does have this moment of, like, well, yeah, I mean, you're right. <laughs> you, you need me. 
and so, of course, the IRS agent has finished his calls and comes back out in the main room just as all of this conversation peaks. <laughs> we see him overhearing the whole thing in the background, and then Jim notices him, and we end our episode on a freeze fame of Jim's shrug and guilty smile. Yep. What you gonna do? What you gonna do? So that is The Man Who Saw the Alligators. Okay, so I I quite enjoyed that episode. Uh, I think that uh, now that we've gone through the whole thing, I'm trying to assess it as the possible ending hmm. of the whole series. Which, again, it's not necessarily that it was planned to be the last episode of the series, right. but it was shot as at the end of, of the production cycle. Yeah, it was could very well have been the last episode shot. So there's certain things about it that, to me, I would, I would have had more Rocky and more Dennis, right? Yeah. But otherwise, like, it was a really good episode. I mm-hmm. felt, I'm, I'm glad we did it in the combination that we did so that we had yeah. Tony Boy fresh in our brains. And Syl. Let's not forget Syl. I think Syl is kind of, like, low-key, just as interesting. I mean, he... Yeah, He doesn't have as much, like, personality that we discover, but we do see him kind of falling back into the routine of his with his partner. He is that support guy. Yeah. Uh, he's there to do the job, and since he said he would, he's doing his best. But he also has a hard line of, like, this is what I promised I would do for you. Right. Like, I didn't promise to just go, you know, to shoot Angel after he squealed. Like, that wasn't yeah. part of the deal. So he has, he's still trying to hold a line of his own, even while he's... Fulfilling the like loyalty that he has to uh, to Tony. I have a genuine affection for Syl. Yeah. At the end of this episode, yeah, me too. And it makes me want to go back and look at the previous episode to see if the groundwork for that mm. was accidentally laid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think so. A he definitely bit. was more reluctant in that episode as well. He's the more right? passive partner. Yeah, he's the one who has to keep rescuing Tony. Right. Because Tony keeps on doing, going off half cocked. Yeah. He gets caught up in the horses. I remember that. Ah, yes. So there's a little bit of like, Syl is the the professional. uh, It's not that Tony was not the professional. It was just that like, Syl was the more level headed, I think. Yeah. Um, And obviously didn't have a problem with LA. Right. But uh, it was good to see him on the other side of that, kind of laid down some roots Obviously enjoying his life. <laughs> it's low-key a one last job for him. Yeah, and he's certainly going back to prison now. Yeah. I don't think there's a warm future for Syl after mm-hmm. this, if he survived at all. Like, um, did anyone die in this episode? Did Syl die? Syl didn't. No, they they make a point of, 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 we see him talk after he gets shot, and they're, like, supporting him. Richie doesn't. He gets shot in the leg. Yeah, although, and I, just in case... Any of our listeners want to experiment with that. Uh, getting shot in the leg is a real easy way to die. There's a, <laughs> a major artery there. Uh, people die from leg wounds all the time. Don't shoot people in the legs. Uh, I bring that up because that's a standard trope of TV. Yeah. I'll hurt them with this gun <laughs> and put them out of commission. And it's like, no. And, of course, seeing Manette, I think Manette, that whole scene, if this had happened earlier in the Rockford Files, like if this was, uh, if Protect and Serve was first season and this was third season, uh, I would have loved to have seen Manette return. Manette again, yeah. Yeah. The actor comes back, um, mm-hmm. but not in the same role. What do you think? Uh, I think it's great. I uh, I was a little, not apprehensive, but this is one that I've kind of intentionally not watched since the first time I saw it because mm-hmm. I didn't want to 
be too familiar with it before watching it for the show again, uh, because I remembered it as being such a striking character portrait. Yeah. Um, and so that it, it did not disappoint, uh, in that way. Um, there's something about the willingness to take a popular show with a popular actor and be like, he's going to be the side character yeah. for this one. <laughs> he's the B plot. Yeah. He's going to be the B plot and we're going to explore this really damaged person through the lens of the storytelling we do on this show. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's very, you know, it's very David Chase. Uh, You know, it has Rockford-ness, right? It doesn't not feel like a Rockford Files episode. Right, right. But uh, yeah, I think it's a very, it's, you know, it's, it's compelling. You want to see where this is going. It's a solid piece of TV, right? Like, you could just watch this without having watched any of the Rockford Files. Right. I mean, they give you the, you know, they give you the exposition to tell you what the specific event that put Tony in jail is and why he hates Rockford, like why Rockford was involved with that. Dennis has three lines about it and mm-hmm. the rest of it is you're just watching the movie, right? Yeah. It's really good. I think, like I said, the only thing that kind of struck me on the rewatch as being a little underserved is um, Adriana. Yeah. That character, plot-wise, makes sense. I don't know how much more she really needed to be in the episode, like, line-wise. But there's just something about uh, something about that character where she's pretty unmemorable, um, as opposed to many of the side characters in <laughs> in the show, as we like so, like so much. Yeah. Other than that, I don't know. It's really good. Do you have any thoughts about the two or the three episodes together as like a unit? Uh, well, I'm glad we did it that way. Uh, certainly, I think that um, Tony Boy is memorable in the way that a lot of side uh, Rockford Files characters are, mm-hmm. which means that he doesn't stand out against that backdrop. Right. So it was good to have him fresh in our mind when we moved on to this next one. All you needed to know from the previous episode, aside from the fact that Rockford was vaguely involved. No, no, there's a few things. Number one, uh, Tony and Syl work mm-hmm. together. Tony hates LA uh, or California. Uh Especially their pizza. Yeah, yeah. Those threads are all plant are all in protect and serve. Yeah, and they're just like followed through on here. Yeah. The main thing is that like uh, just how obsessive because he does get obsessive about Rockford in protect and serve too. He's he's yeah. well because Rockford kicks him in the knee. Like I think it's like it starts with that right. Like he has that plate in his knee or whatever. Yeah. Rockford kicks him in the knee and it's this incredible amount of pain. <sighs> and from then on, he just like hates Rockford. Not to relitigate that, <laughs> but I loved that scene because it it's such a great way to get out of what was inevitable in that situation. Like without having Rockford just being a prize fighter or anything like yeah. that. He he does the desperate move and it just, you know, happens to hit him in the surgery and Tony Boy being who he is is like get me to a doctor now. Mm. I will come back and deal with this guy. I just don't want to deal with this pain right now. Yeah, I kind of expected that some there might be a callback to that, like with Jim kicking him in the knee again at some point. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of a missed opportunity there. Does he get him in the liver? He's <laughs> He might punch him in the liver. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah. There's something very coherent about this obsession that just seems to rise out of being in pain, which mm-hmm. is kind of abstract and you know, unpleasant, obviously. Yeah. But then once he focuses focuses the cause of that onto Jim. Yeah. Then every single other thing that's bad that happens to him also comes from Jim. Right. Like it's this really unhealthy. <laughs> 
obviously, you know, obsessive behavior that, again, we see develop and we see explained through this episode. And it makes sense. And I see how this character got to where he is. But at no point do I feel empathy. I can feel sympathetic in some points because I Mm -hmm. can see why what he does, you know, what motivates what he does. But there is no empathy, right? I do not... Yeah. Feel for him. I'm not on his side. And I think that's a trick that may not trick. I think that's hard to do in TV. It's a good goal, but it's also a good technique to keep you invested in what's happening. Yeah. Because it's not like a Shades of Grey thing where it's like, oh, he has like noble aspirations, but he goes about it the wrong way. Or like he's a villain who believes who believes that he's right in a world that's wrong. And it's like, he does believe that he's right and he believes the world is wrong, but the thing that he thinks he's right about is itself morally indefensible. Yeah. And like, you see that in Manette as well. Like, Mm -hmm. and the way everybody in that part of his life is uh, angling to absolve themselves of Mm -hmm. the responsibilities of anything that's happening, right? Like, this is on you, this is on him, this is on this. Uh, Because he, like, at the end, like his speech when Richie's there, he he lays it on his mother too. I think, yeah. like, because mm-hmm. yeah, I'm trying to remember the line, but it was something like we had fear with our milk, right? Like mm-hmm. we, uh, this is what we grew up with, and um, yeah, that's a whole mess of people who are all doing bad things, and it's always someone else's fault. But they're all doing bad things to each other, so to some extent, there is someone else's fault there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, good stuff. <laughs> it is, it is uh, quality quality television. I say. Someone should do a podcast about this show. I think there is enough humor in it to keep it from being a hard watch. It's not a hard watch at all, but it is not really a romp. Right. right, Like it is a little more like be ready for some serious tone for some threats of violence, Mm -hmm. you know, some stuff that feels pretty real, but it is also funny and it kind of starts and ends. It bookends it with Jim's difficulties in his life. So if you cut it down to Jim's stuff, it's a romp. Mm -hmm. It's a comedic romp, right? Like where he's taken hostage somewhere near the end. (laughs) And then he gets to throw a Molotov cocktail. Yes. And angels around whenever there's trouble. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for agreeing to do this little cycle. I think it was. Yeah, this is fun. Interesting. Good stuff. Glad we got to do the deep dive on obsessive David Chase characters. Agreed. And uh, so maybe we'll find something a little more rompy for our next (laughs) couple episodes. We'll see. That sounds right up my alley. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And of course, we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.